0: Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded, where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Lord, we need you. More and more we need you, God. I'm grateful for your grace and your mercy. I ask God a blessing over this time. I ask God that our hearts would be drawn unto you and uh, that uh, we would, from your word, once again see your grace and your mercy. Once again, we would see Jesus just how much you love us, Lord. And I pray that through the study of your word, God, that we would come to love you more, that we would leave this place loving you more. God, that You would use this time to mold and to shape our hearts and our lives through the power of Your Spirit. Father, I would ask that You would help me to rightly divide Your Word, that I would not lead anyone to the left or to the right, and that uh, all of us would come to know You more and love You more. Jesus, we thank You for this time. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I did tell you to turn to John chapter 5, but we're actually not going to start there. Keep your finger there. Flip backwards to Matthew chapter 2. Just wanted to look at something. While you're doing that, I want to explain kind of what what the plan is for the next few weeks, at least what we're gonna attempt. And I don't tell you right up front, this is an experiment, but I think it'll work. I mentioned last week as we introduced the Christmas songs, those songs that we're all familiar with, at least familiar with the first verse, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Something, something, something. You know, we we, we we've got the we got the melody. Usually the first verse we know pretty well. When you get into the second verse, it gets a little, what's a jewelry and what's a, you know, I don't know. But what I said was, hey, remember that when these songs were written, they were written as worship songs. Some 150, some 200, 250 years old. Those that penned these hymns didn't write them just so that we could sing them without thinking about them. Just because we know the melody, we're just going to sing them. And so as we sing them each week, take a look at the words again, refresh and re-see them rather than just singing them for tradition's sake, just because it's what we're supposed to do this time of year. And so what I thought we would do, since we've got three weeks left until Christmas, I thought I'd like to try to take one of those hymns that we sing all the time and maybe break it down a little bit, dissect just part of it each week, and see how we can find it in the text, in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the hymn that I thought we would try this year is the, the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now that's one we're all f- probably familiar with. You've sung a few times before. But it's it, it comes from the idea in Matthew 2 that um, the the wise men came from the east bearing gifts. And so let's read it, and then I'll, I'll continue to explain what uh, what my thought process is in all of this. So Matthew chapter 2, we're just going to start at the beginning and just read a few verses, okay? It says, Now after this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, quoting the Old Testament now, he says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring word back to me so that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was Another way. And so these wise men, these magi, these kings came and worshiped the child. And when they came, they brought three gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I'll tell you up front this is kind of going to be like a sermon in four parts. And the best, the, the best thing you can do is make a commitment to come to the next four services, the next three Sundays, and then Christmas Eve as well. Uh, and and it will all kind of hopefully tie together. That's, that's the goal anyway. We'll see how it works, uh, this, this brainchild of mine. <laughs> but uh, my thought was, as the, the three kings, we don't know that there were three. There could have been more than that. There were three gifts. As the kings came and gave their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, of course those things are prophetic in a way as to who our king would become. And, and that's what we'll talk about on Christmas Eve. But what I wanted to show in our text today in John chapter 5 is while Jesus received those gifts as a young child when he was grown and in his ministry, he in fact gives those gifts to us. He enables us or he at least instructs us in how to use those gifts in different ways. And so what I thought is over the next three weeks, we'll take one of each of the gifts as we go through John chapter 5 and see how Jesus demonstrates or gives those gifts to us. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going. The first one being gold. That's actually in the hymn, the hymnist wrote, it's in the second verse. The first verse is just kind of a general hymn. But in the second verse, it's written from the aspect of as if the king were singing it, the king that gave the gold. It says, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. And so this king brings gold to crown him as a king. And I like it that the, the hymn that says king forever. He is the king forever. And it's not according to the line of David, it's according to the line of Melchizedek. And you can study that in your own time as you, as you have time. But he is on the throne forever and ever. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is ceasing from being a king, never, as the hymn would say. And so that's kind of what the gold represents. Now we're, we're going to watch how Jesus and this man at the pool at Bethesda, and, and we're going to kind of tie it all together here hopefully. Okay, so flip back down to John chapter 5. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, in the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. You're welcome to take that with you. If that one is the 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 print is a little bit small or you have trouble reading it, there's a a lost and found on the back shelf there. Um, Peruse those. If you see one you like, go ahead take it. (laughs) There's a nice leather bound one back there. It's been back there a long time. Just help yourself. Hopefully, maybe that will stir some of us to say, hey, I lost my Bible like six months ago. I wonder if it's back there. It might be. So, all right. Hey, remember that John was written, the purpose John wrote, the the Gospel of John, was that we might believe in Jesus and have eternal life. So let's look at this story in John chapter 5. John 5, verse 1. Ready? It says, after this, now pause there, We got real far, huh? After this, well, after what? Now, if you're like me, as I went to study this week and get things ready, I read that and I said, after this, and I had to go, I have no idea after what. I'm the guy that taught it last week and I don't remember what I taught last week. So chances are, if you're like me, you're sitting there going, I have no idea what the after this is. Maybe, as we come to church... We should come prepared. Maybe, maybe we should review a little bit. That's what I had to do, is go back and say, well, after what? And the after this that he's speaking of, of course, is after what happened in chapter 4. Well, what happened in chapter 4? At the end, the, the Jesus healed the nobleman's son. Okay. He was up in Cana, up in, and a man from Capernaum came and he, and he said, Hey, I've got a sick son. You need to come with me, Jesus. Jesus said, No, I don't need to go with you. All I need to do is say, Hey, this son, your son is healed. The man believed and the son was healed. Okay. Remember all that from last week now. So now it's saying after this, now you know what after this is after this. Okay. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, we need to pause there again just to note this because if you're familiar with the geography of the land, he was in Cana, and Cana is near Galilee, and Galilee is north of Jerusalem. So it says he went up to Jerusalem. I live in Westerville, and when I come to church here in Reynoldsburg, I don't go up to church, do I? I go down to church because it's south. Well, Jesus headed south, but it says he went up. That's kind of confusing. What's that all about? Well, here's the deal. In the Bible, whenever anybody went to Jerusalem, no matter where they were coming from, it was always going up. Why? Because they're going to the city of David. They're going to the city of God. And when you're going to get closer to God, where God was dwelling there in the temple, you're going up. The same is true when we come to church. As we gather together in the name of God, we're going up to meet him. And so Jesus, though headed south, was still going up to Jerusalem. It said there was a feast going on. We don't know what the feast was. Um, one of the three feasts that they would gather yearly there in Jerusalem and throw a huge party. It says in verse two, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. All right, so let's look at the geography a little bit again, just the geography of the city as we had the temple. To the northeast of the temple was the sheep gate there in the wall where they would bring the sheep in for the animal sacrifices of the temple. Near that gate there was a pool, this pool of Bethesda. I tried to go online and and get some pictures of it. As you go and tour Jerusalem, they will show you, they found the pool and they will show you where it is. But I believe from what I got from John Corson at least, is that the pool is, is relatively square, which would leave four sides, but there were five porches. Well, how does that work? Well, the way John would say it was there was a porch on each side, this, this covered area that people would gather, and then there was actually a porch, that, uh, like an arched bridge across the pool, and they would consider that the fifth porch. And right there near the temple, that makes sense? And so right there near the temple, all these people would come and gather. So there you kind of got the picture in your head? There near the temple on the northeast side of the temple, this pool named Bethesda. Now, it says in Hebrew, that's what it was called. Generally, when a name is given like that, it has a meaning, and in this case it does as well. Beth, whenever you see the word Beth in Hebrew, that means house. And so it's a house of something. In this case, it's the house of mercy. Bethesda means house of mercy. And certainly with Jesus coming to this place in this day, it certainly was a house of mercy. It says in verse 3, In these, speaking of the, the porches, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Okay, kind of weird picture, right? I mean, yes, we're reading the Word of God. It is the Word of God. I believe it to be true. But sounds kind of like a, something you would see by one of those weird preachers. Just step into the pool when the water bubbles and you'll be fine. But that's what was happening. An angel would come down and stir up the waters. Whoever got into the pool first was healed. Now, though I don't understand it, the one thing I don't want to do is limit God and say that can't be. Could God do this? Could God cause a stirring in the pool that when people stepped in that they got healed? The answer is yes, he certainly could. And it appears as though he did. And so I trust the Word of God. Now, as they unearthed the the remains of the Pool of Bethesda, they did find that the pool was fed by a natural spring. And perhaps when that spring got air in it, that would cause the waters to bubble. And people with an active faith, they said, hey, it's bubbling. I I don't know. People would try to explain away the miracles of God all the time. I'm just going to take this at face value to say an angel came and would stir the waters and whoever stepped in got healed. That's why the sick and the lame and the paralyzed and everybody were hanging around there. Okay? It says in verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When I'm reading the Word of God, one of the things I like to do is try to to paint the picture. That's why I like to find out about the pool and what it looked like. So I've got that picture in my head. I imagine the sick people laying around it. And then it kind of, if you were doing a film of it, it would zoom in on this guy who's laying there and has been sick for 38 years. And when I saw that, my question was, have I done anything for 38 years? Let me ask you this. Is there anybody in this room that's been married 38 years? Right on. Right on. We actually had more first service. Very good. Now, 38 years is a long time, yes? And Bob looks at his wife. Is that a long time? Yes, yes. That's a long time. 38 years is a long time to be married. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it, but not everybody's doing it. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's a good thing. They've been doing something good for 38 years. Imagine being sick for 38 years. Waking up every day. Waiting for somebody to drag you next to the pool so that you can put your hand out as people were coming to the temple hoping that they were feeling religious today, and in their religiosity, they'd reach in and grab a coin and press it into your palm. That's all this man could do. He had no career. He had probably no family because he couldn't provide for a family. He woke up each day going, is today the day I get better? Or is today the day I die? Miserable life. Is today the day that the waters stir and maybe if I could just get in, all will be made well? Or am I going to miss it again like I have in the past? That's a hard way to live for that long. It's a hard way to live. We don't know what this infirmity was. It'll say in another translation that he was an invalid he wasn't able to move. It left him incapacity, incapacitated. We're going to see that, that as he talks with Jesus, he says, I have nobody to put me into the pool. He couldn't do it in and of himself. When Michelle and I were in Ethiopia, I saw a woman who was paralyzed or must have been paralyzed, unable to walk, but with it being a third world country, she didn't have a wheelchair either. And she was on the ground. And to get from place to place, she would push herself up on her hands and move forward, dragging her legs behind her. Very, very slowly. I, was just, I saw her a couple times and my heart ached. I could not imagine having to live like that. How difficult her life must be. That's thats where this man was. And any time I read about lame People in the, in the Bible, I identify. and I hope in one way or another, you can as well. But I identify because I was born lame. In 1971. My mom gave birth to me, and they were quickly recognized, "Hey, there's something wrong here, something going on that we need to correct. When I was born, I was born with a clubbed foot. Give you the picture just so you understand. When I was born, my big toe was resting on my ankle. Okay? My foot was curved around into a ball. And so they recognized hey, we need to fix this. And so when I was two days old, they took my foot and they broke it. And they set it straight, and then for the next two years of my life, I lived with, the, with a certain pair of shoes on with a bar in between those shoes to keep my left foot from turning back in. Two years. I was born with that, and then I was also born with what's called tibial tortia. That's Your tibia bone is the bone right here. And that bone was shaped like a backward C. So when I was four years old, they corrected that. What they did is they drilled two holes in the bone. They shoved steel rods through those holes. Um, it was shaped this way. They drove the, the steel rods through it. They rotated it, so then it was mounted up like this. And then I wore a cast for six months from the hip to the foot in order to get that bone to sit down. And then I spent years and years and years in rehab after that. So when I read about a lame man, I know what that's like. Now, the beautiful thing is, God healed me. That I was born in 1971, in which the technology was that enough that I could have corrective surgery, and if I didn't tell anybody today that I was born with a club foot, nobody would know. You guys would have no idea. For years, I had a pastor that I grew up under born in the 40s with a club foot. And he lived a life as a lame man. He, he was not able to have his corrected. So I'm grateful that my God has healed me, that I was born in a day that, that the technology was available to do that, and I can have a, a thriving life and do the things that I do. I work a physical job. I fix garage doors. If I were lame, I wouldn't be able to do that. My God has healed me, so I identify with this guy. I, I get where he's coming from. That he wouldn't all, all he could do was beg. That he wasn't even allowed into his temple because he was lame, because he was marked, because he was an invalid. He wasn't even allowed into the the temple. He had never seen the inside where God dwelt. He, a misfit, a miserable. Horrible life, and that's the the picture that we need to identify with. And Jesus steps in and changes everything. Okay, verse 6 When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus asked him, he sees them there. All these sick people, he hones in on this one guy, a guy that's been sick for 38 years. Do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, I'd love to. But every time I try to get into the pool, there's a blind guy that hears really well and he hears when the water's being stirred and he walks just fine, so he gets in the pool before me and he's healed. Or there's somebody that's not as sick as I am that's able to walk or to get there. I have nobody to help me put me in the pool when the water is stirred. I'd love to be made well, but it's just not working, Jesus. And what I want us to know in that is this man answers the wrong question. Jesus didn't ask him if he wanted to be put in the pool. Jesus asked him if he wanted to be made well. The guy answers, yeah, I'd love to be put in the pool, and by that being made well. And what we need to learn from that is, as Jesus asks us to do something, or if we want something, don't limit Him to our understanding or what we want to to contain God in. That that we're going to limit Him to the way that we think, yeah, God, I'd love for you to do this as long as it's done by this day or as long as it's done in this way. We shouldn't limit God like that. As God asks us, we should just simply say, hey, as you will. As you will. And sometimes that means the breaking process. And sometimes that means difficult things. But if I be made well, I be made well. We need to be careful that we don't limit God by what we ask, but rather that we allow God to work His will in our lives. Okay? So Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, yeah. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Can we just think about that for a second? You and I, if you've been... In, in the Christian life for a long time, we can read that and just go, well, of course that's what he said. He's Jesus. Rise. And the guy got up and walked. And that's what we're going to find out. That's exactly what happened. But can you just think about that for a second? That for 38 years, this man has done nothing like that. He doesn't know how to walk. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the knowledge on how to do it. And what I want us to see in that is when Jesus chooses to heal somebody, He doesn't just clear up the infirmity, He heals the man completely. Had He been laying down for 38 years, the muscles in His legs were completely atrophied. They had no mass whatsoever, they would have no use whatsoever. Jesus heals that as well. He gives Him the strength in His legs to stand. He, hurt, he cures his infirmity, whatever that was that kept him from rising up and walking. He, he corrects that. He heals that. But he also gives him the muscle mass to be able to stand. On top of that, he gives him the knowledge on how to stand and how to walk. Did you ever think about that? When you walked for the first time, did you get it right? No. No. Just in case you don't remember, no, you didn't get it right. What happened was you stood up, you figured out, you kind of got your balance, and then as your head was heavier than the rest of your body because you had a big fat head and little short legs, what happened is your head started to fall forward and as that did, you stuck a leg out. And then in order to keep some momentum, you, you stuck the other leg out and what you were doing is trying not to fall. And we as parents said, hey, good job, he's walking. No, he's not. He's just trying not to fall. It took practice. It took trying and trying and falling and trying and trying. And, and maybe over the course of a week or over the course of a few days, you kind of got it figured out, but even then you continue to stumble. This man does not have that issue. In the moment that he is cured by the miraculous our living, loving God, he's given the knowledge, he's given the balance, he's given the strength to do so. God heals completely, entirely. And he's given his life. As he rises up, as he rolls up this mat and sticks it under his arm, I can only envision the things that he's thinking. Hey, I don't have to come here tomorrow. I can go to work. And I can get a job. And in that, I can provide for my family. I can make a family. I can have a life. Jesus cures the infirmity, but he also hands him his life. He, he he puts some gold in his pocket. He gives him an opportunity to go and to live a life. And in that we see Jesus giving us an opportunity for life as well. Truly the house of mercy. Little catch. Little little issue. Little note in that verse, verse 9. It says, and it was the Sabbath day. Alright, some people are going to have some trouble that this happened on a particular day. It says in verse 10, The Jews therefore said to Him who was cured... It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat, carry your bed. Now when it says the Jews, and it's going to repeat that term again three, a couple other times in the chapter, the Jews that it's speaking of, not the entirety, but the Jews that it is speaking of is the religious leaders of the day, specifically the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that were in control at the, de- at the time, and they desired control over the people. And so what they did was kept track of the law. They had their commentary on the law called the Mishnah, and so they took this tradition of man, the Mishnah, and made it their law, and so when this man rose up and rolled up his mat and and tucked it under him, they said, whoop, whoop, whoop. They're breaking the law, breaking the law. The police come down and, you know, they want to take care of this. And, hey, you can't do that here. That's not allowed. You can't roll up your mat. Where in the Word of God does it say that you can't do that? It doesn't. Now, it does say, honor the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments. One day in seven you shall rest later on in the Levitical laws, there are some guidelines as to what that meant. You could only walk so far on the Sabbath day. There were certain issues. What they did in the Mishnah is they took that commandment, honor the Sabbath, and they wrote 23 chapters on exactly what that means. And by that, then in their tradition or their interpretation of the law, they could control exactly what the people did. And in that tradition, in the Mishnah, it said, you can't roll up your mat can't carry it, that's, that's work. Some of the, some of the laws they, they created in the Mishnah were just insane, crazy laws. So to the point that at a certain point in time in the Jewish culture, they thought you couldn't go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. What? I'm sorry, I, I can't hold it that long. <laughs> but they were that exacting. Jesus said, "Right, you know, roll up your bed." The dude that healed me said, "Roll up my bed. I'm doing it. Uh, I- I've rested for 38 years. I'm good on rest right now. Uh, I think I'll roll up my bed and walk. It's. I-, I think that's cool." But they wanted to bust him for this breaking of tradition. So verse 11, he answered them and said, hey, it's not me. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Since he made me well, I'm going to take up my bed. That's cool. I'm going to do it. Like I said, I've been laying down 38 years. I think I'll walk here. they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who would tell you this? Who would break our tradition? The religious police are out. And what's sad in that, what we see is that they're more concerned about a broken law than a healed man. We should never be that way. We should be more excited when when someone comes to Christ as to whether or not they're dropping the F-bomb. You're a saved soul? Praise the Lord. Yeah, we don't say that here in church. Okay, maybe God will take that from you. I hope that He does. But if that's where you're at right now, cool, because you're a saved soul. We should never be more concerned with the rules that we have put in place than someone being cured. Who said this to you? And the guy's like, um, well... It uh, says in verse 13, but the one who healed, who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Remember, this was during a festival. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, let's pause there for a second. What I want us to see in that is Jesus certainly is concerned with his physical well being. He took the time to heal him, and that's a good thing. And he's concerned with our physical well being as well, but that he doesn't leave it there. Jesus says, Hey, you've been made well. Great. Now, sin no more also. Live a holy life, live unto God. He's concerned with his spiritual life as well. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath. More concerned about a broken law than a cured life. So we see Jesus there in the house of mercy, offering abundant mercy, setting this man's life up again, giving him opportunity, not just for this life, but for the life eternal. Go and sin no more. He offers him the gift of a life given back. And we see that as Jesus gives this man that gift, he gives it freely. He doesn't ask for anything in return. And what I want to glean from that in this Christmas season this year is that we would do the same. That we would get away from the give to get. That we would get away from what's it about for me? What can I glean from this time? And we would allow ourselves to live a life that would be grace driven. That we would, our, our gifting this year would be grace driven like our saviors is. I don't know what your guys' traditions are as far as Christmas goes, and certainly when Christmas is around, that's when the traditions come out, right? And they are just traditions of men. I don't know if you do the Christmas tree or you don't do the Christmas tree, and you've got a reason why you do it or you don't do it. We celebrate Santa or we don't celebrate Santa or we, we or I don't care. Do what you're going to do in your family. That's up to you. If you're comfortable doing it, do what you're going to do, whatever you want. The one thing I want us to be cautious of is that we wouldn't use the traditions of man to police those that we're trying to care for, or to set up set up rules that we well. I gave a gift that's ten dollars. They need to give a gift that's ten dollars. That's fair. Or, and here's here's where we t- traditionally see using tradition to curb people's. Um, the way they act, right? Hey, Johnny, Santa's coming. And you know if you want gifts, you've got to be a good little boy. Otherwise, you might get some coal in your stocking. When we do that, we're acting more like a Pharisee than we are our Savior. Because we're using the law, the tradition of man, to curb somebody's activity. Let's move away from that this year and say, Johnny, you've been a bad little boy, but you get a gift anyway. Because in my life, I've been a bad boy, but my Savior gave me a gift. He loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me, and he loves you too. And so in His grace, I give you this gift. Let's move toward that this year. grace given, Grace-giving. Grace-driven giving. There it is. Grace-driven giving. That we might honor and glorify our Savior. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You. We praise You for Your grace and Your mercy poured out upon the cross. And Lord, we want to live in light of the Gospel that You have given unto us freely. We want to give freely as well. May we not take advantage of the traditions of man to curb our children or to make rules for the people that we interact with to set standards that will ultimately be broken, God, but that we would just simply, in the way that You have given to us, that we would give unto others joyfully. May we honor You in this season. And we recognize, Lord, that the gold that we have in our pockets, those those the monies that we have to buy those gifts, have been given to us by You as well. That You have provided that opportunity for us. That You have raised up the lame man that we might have life. Life now and life eternal. And we thank You and we praise You. May we live for You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.